Welcome to Shanghai Zan, a raw and lively regular debate about China tech, advertising, creativity, platforms, and the intersection of it all. Join us each session for timely and relevant discussions on all things China marketing. We will also be joined by an entire spectrum of China experts, and you can learn more about Shanghai Zan at our website, zanstation.com. I'm Bryce Zhuang, and I'm Ali Kasmi, and we'd like to thank all of you for your continued support.、Uh, Ali, we've hit over two hundred and forty thousand downloads as of today. That's pretty good, right? It's amazing. Congratulations!、Yeah. Most of it is my mother who's been <laughs> listening over and over again、uh, to the episode. No, no, she doesn't. She listens once. But if you like the show,、uh, share it with your friends, or better yet, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Well, I guess the big news before we get into the podcast is your new motorcycle, Ali. How how's the new motorcycle? The new motorcycle is amazing. It's a、uh, uh, for for anyone that enjoys adventure riding. It's a 750 GS. It's a it's a triple black. So it's just Comes in not three different shades of black.、Um, I haven't done any modifications to it.、Uh, I look forward to、uh, to riding it、uh, whenever I visit Spain next. So it, does, it doesn't sit with me. It's it's、uh, in Shanghai. It's in Spain. Oh wow,、uh, a BMW, right? It's a, a, that's correct.、Right. I'm very jealous. Yeah, no, I, I, I you you got to get one. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. I definitely,、uh, I definitely <laughs> found the just list. Just don't tell the wife. Yeah, I know. I'm waiting for her to to. I'm waiting for a, a moment when she's not around, so I can go and get one <laughs> and surprise her when he come home. But、uh, more on the motorcycle stuff. Our show today, we have、uh, Stefan Wilmot to talk about beauty and beauty business, being beautiful in 2023. Stefan is a highly accomplished executive with extensive experience in the consumer beauty industry across both sides of the Pacific. With a career spanning over 30 years, Wilmette's notable roles, including、uh, serving as the chief consumer officer at L'Oreal China, where he is responsible for overseeing consumer strategic branding, insights, foresights, and M&A activities. He played a crucial role in shaping the company's brand strategies and understanding consumer preferences in the China market. Then he moved back to the U.S.、Uh, during the pandemic. And worked as senior vice president of M and A for L'Oreal USA in New York,、uh, where he had worked previously. Wilmot's successful career completed three acquisitions that have made top ten beauty brands for Chinese consumers. As we all know, success in China is what makes the company L'Oreal the indisputed number one beauty group in the world. And I always tell that to my students. I always give them the quiz. What's the biggest market for for L'Oreal? Someone will say France. Someone might say the U.S.、Uh, but now they're learning it's China, and we'll get more into why that is. Wilmette recently left L'Oreal, and he's been working as an advisor to PE firms and a guest lecturer at different business schools. His experience extends beyond the beauty industry, as he also serves as a board director for Toys R Us Asia, a role that gives him insight in the consumer and retail sectors across the Asian region. With extensive industry knowledge, strategic mindset, and a track record of accomplishments, Stefan is a respected leader in the consumer beauty industry. Stefan, welcome to Shanghai Zan. Thank you, Bryce. Nice to be on on. Shanghai, John. Nice to meet you, Ali. And, and any、uh, any plans to get a motorcycle soon, Stefan? Just、uh, around that subject. I have a、uh, e-bike that I brought from China and a scooter, and I think I'm going to limit my rides in the city of New York 
with these uh, two wheels. Um, two appropriate transportation devices for, for New York City, definitely. Andy, does your does your motorcycle come with a helmet in Spain? I do. I do wear a helmet. Uh, I'm a. I have a number of helmets actually, and I have another motorcycle. I, I used to have a Changyang 750, um, which I got in Beijing many many years ago in '97. And uh, I've shipped it off to, to, to Spain as well. So anything that with two wheels or three wheels and lots of helmets, everything's... My wife isn't happy at all, but it's all it's all stationed in the garage in Spain. Good. Stay safe, Ali. Yeah, stay safe. So, Stefan, we know that the beauty business in China is big, but you know there are a number of market nuances that the world can learn from China as far as how businesses run there. I mean, that's the one thing that's always fascinating to me is like, from our experience, what are certain elements of China that you think in the context of the beauty business will actually move from China to the West? I mean, it could be like sustainability, compliance, education, digital transformation. What are those things that are the building blocks that you think uh, are necessary to or that made China the number one or made L'Oreal the number one beauty brand around the world? As you said just before, uh, when you talk to your students about um, the beauty business, the, the first thing is that the beauty business is a global business. It's very interconnected. So maybe before I talk about China, just to say that you're always learning from all markets all the time. There's always something new somewhere. And it's kind of like the famous or maybe the infamous um, butterfly effect, but applied to beauty. The, the idea that one smaller trend somewhere can have a uh, non-linear impact on the global beauty world. But yes, when it comes to China, there's so much to learn from, from China. At the big picture level, and the two of you, Ali and Bryce, you, you know this from your own experiences in China. In China, you learn scale and you learn speed. And there's no other market where you can learn how to scale in beauty at such a speed. And for a beauty business, you either catch the, uh, the the Chinese high-speed train or you stay behind. So you learn about e-commerce at scale. You learn about digital at scale. You learn social commerce at scale. You learn influencers at scale. But it's not just online. It's all forms of interaction points with the consumers on their uh, online and offline uh, journey. And with regards to the nuances that, that you mentioned, and of course, we all know that China is aging quickly. There's a lot of talk going on about this aging phenomenon these days in the, in the China-focused world. But the beauty business itself is still very much driven by young consumers. Therefore, it's infused constantly by a youth culture that, that permeates every aspect of the business. So, for instance... You were asking, uh, for what can we learn? In some Western markets, when it comes to skincare, for instance, consumers will start using anti-aging products for correction, for corrective purposes, to correct some aging skin concerns that they may have. But in China, consumers, as you know, start using anti-aging products for prevention at a very young age, maybe when they're 16, 17, 18, so 10, 15 years before their counterparts elsewhere would, would start using them. You, you mentioned sustainability. Uh, like many big transformative trends that are constantly shaping and reshaping uh, consumption in China, 
and, and I've heard the two of you talk about this with other guests you, you've had, but these these trends, they don't exist. They're not there. And then the next day they're there, but they're there and scaled. And sustainability today, it's a major concern for consumers. It's what you marketers call a, a table stake. It wasn't necessarily at the table as a critical attribute before, but now it's a given. And if you're not working on sustainable solutions that improve the, the beauty world, then you're out of the consideration of, um, of consumers. This being said, and there are many experts working in the field of sustainability who, who would know so much more than I do, but sustainability uh, in China will be uh, with Chinese characteristics, as, as we say in China. Uh, they, they will reflect the cultural dimensions that pre-exist and they, that predate the Western-based sustainable uh, movement. And then it will help sustainability globally. And this, I think, is where we can learn from China, this fundamental cultural link that ties what you eat or drink with your health, the inside and the outside, how you treat the environment and how you live in your own body. And, of course, it provides a cultural frame for this sustainability discussion that brands can have with their consumers. You mentioned uh, transparency, and transparency is very much linked to this point about sustainability knowing that in China, consumers have a very high level of expertise when it comes to ingredients. So understanding what goes into a formula, at what concentration, for what output, is a big educational critical step needed not only to connect, but also to help consumers. And what you learn in China, you can apply elsewhere. You, you asked Bryce about the, the building blocks. Um, I've heard the two of you mentioned this many times uh, in China and on your podcast, I think change is a constant. It's a given in China. I don't know if um, if uh, Heraclitus was thinking about China when he famously remarked that the only thing that is constant is change, but that's clearly what is at stake for the beauty business in China. Every Maybe every three years, four years, maximum five years, a new generation of consumer comes up. Like, like, say, a, the equivalent of a universe, four-year university cohort. And they have very new beauty aspirations, new beauty dreams. They, they have a new beauty culture. They use platforms, either new platforms or existing platforms differently. They have new beauty codes. And I, I know you've, you guys have heard it already many times. You, you'll have these new hires, freshly graduated join the company and then they say they don't understand their younger siblings. I mean, not their real siblings, but the, the younger Chinese consumers were four years younger than them. And, and so the, the building blocks, they need to be both super solid to withstand these changes, but they also need to be super flexible so they can integrate these changes as new foundations. And so there are many of those uh, building blocks. I, I would say in beauty, there's a few like trust. And trust is linked to education. And it's measured by reviews. And it's measured by ratings. And it's measured by what consumers and non-consumers say about your brand and your products. And trust, of course, is linked to results. It's linked to um, 
efficacy in beauty efficacy rules to a certain extent so if you have a skin or a hair concern whatever it may be you want performance and you want results so i think the first building block to answer your question is trust another building block is um maybe we can call it aspiration you want your brand to be aspirational you want your brand to be inspirational to consumers because consumers change all the time their preferences and viewpoints so you need to work to ensure that you remain relevant and aspirational. They, they trust the solutions you, you bring to them. So, so that requires a constant vigilance when it comes to brand equity. And it's a world and it's a requirement and it's an expertise that the two of you know, know very well. And maybe the third building block, I think it's also linked to trust and aspiration. They, they help themselves explain uh, it is in beauty is premiumness, which is often misunderstood for just a, a question of pricing, but has nothing to do with pricing. It's about the service, the better service, the better experience, the closer communication, the bonding with the consumers, the sharing of the values, the, the, how the brand joins the world of the consumers whilst remaining aspirational. So these are three of many uh, building blocks that have helped in my understanding that have helped uh, L'Oreal and its many different brands be so successful in China. On one part you mentioned youth on the agency side, that was also the case where I would go to one of my, my colleagues and say, listen, you know, I'm, I'm 50 plus. I have no idea about this. And my colleague would respond to me, well, I'm in my late 20s or early 30s. I'm already over the hill in the context of what Chinese young women want. I'm like, wow, that is just crazy. I have a question on, you mentioned beauty codes and you mentioned how every, uh, well, I wouldn't say every generation, but within a gap of four to five years, you know, the expectations of consumers obviously are different. How do you as a company stay vigilant or how did you as, you know, as with L'Oreal stay vigilant on what needs or what expectations consumers had and, and how did that affect product innovation for the company? Because especially in China, I've worked in different markets, but in the beauty market of China, because there's this constant change, the most important is to not miss the train, to, to use your, your words. You want to be at the station at the right time, at the jan at the right time, and, and see what train is going by and join them. And so, I, in, again, I don't speak for, I don't represent L'Oreal, and L'Oreal does uh, many things. Uh, but my observation is that you listen to consumers. And in China, we're lucky that consumers uh, want to express their point of view. They're on many platforms, many social medias, sharing their feedback about uh, the products they've used and, and they bought it for this, but they used it for that. And it and then they post pictures and then there's discussion. So there's a very rich world of uh, consu real consumer usage that's there to be analyzed and thought and discussed and discussed with these consumers. What, what do you mean? And what is this? And you can go very deep into the understanding. You know, you, you come out with a product and you think it's going to do this, but then you realize in China that it's used for this, but also for that. 
And and so I think that's how you stay vigilant and how that's how you stay relevant. And it's not difficult per se. It just requires a daily discipline of keeping up with what people say. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. I listened to an interview you did for NYU and you talked about the importance of building brand affinity and brand connections and building that connection, whether that's any of the portfolio brands from L'Oreal or any brand, you know, Urban Decay or Helena Rubinstein, any of those, and USI, you know, any of the brands. We've kind of noticed recently, and this is not a post-COVID thing, it's actually a pre-COVID thing where it seems that there is this dilemma or this paradox where beauty brands are using deep discounts on live stream shows to drive sales. There's less, and I know this from an agency perspective as being, they're spending more time on live shows, dropping prices, and they spend less time on the emotional driven communications. Is there a balance or is the pendulum swing too far to the deep discount live stream model? It's a fundamental question that anyone working on a brand has to uh, face every day. So again, I, I'm not here in in my capacity representing what L'Oreal does or did uh, in China. I, my observation is that, first of all, Bryce, you see this tension between the short-term sales gains and the longer-term brand building in many markets um, across many different industries, not, not just in China. Consumers everywhere want good deals at certain moments when they're shopping. The reality about COVID is that markets experience different forms of COVID-related restrictions at different times. And so there were other markets outside of China that helped pick up business opportunities for to cover for periods when consumers in China were under some forms of, uh, of lockdown. But to your point, to your question about, you know, these deep discounts, you're asking about live stream. Live stream is actually a very interesting moment to recruit new consumers. So if, if you view it as a moment when a consumer meets a brand, a moment to engage with new consumers about something they don't know about your brand or about a product, and you see this as the first of many steps to come in the relationship, then it's not about the discount. And it's not about the short-term uh, sales deep uh, discount. It's about connecting with a consumer that you would not be able to connect with in this kind of form because consumers trust their live streamers and they know at what time of the live stream, the live streamer will be talking about what product. And so there's an element of education. There's an element of fun. There's an element of building your own beauty expertise for the, for the audience, for the watcher that is at play. And so I would say that if you have the big picture of you want to build a relationship with your consumer, then the the discount is less of a of an issue with regards to live stream and with regards to the way this um, plays out. I'm just going to build on something that you just said, and I wonder if there is some truth to it. I also remember one of the big things that happens when people buy product during live stream, and this is an open discussion, by the way, uh, Bryce, feel free to interject as well. But remember, and I don't have an exact figure, but I remember during, let's say, 011, 718, there's also a number of products that are returned. 
to a, a seller or an advertiser. I actually completely agree with you. It's an amazing opportunity to recruit new consumers. Livestream perhaps gives you an opportunity, if I can summarize, to cast the net really wide so that you can recruit new consumers. And I guess even even with the offset of whatever it is, 50% ret- products returned or 30% products returned, it's still... You know, it's still a worthwhile tactic or a method to recruit new consumers. Would you agree to that? I, I would agree. I, I don't remember that high of a return um, rate. But what I do recall is that the live streamer, he or she, uh, puts his or her credibility at stake when he or she chooses the product that will be featured in the live stream. And so if you do your work well, why this, for instance, this product and what to say about this product? And it's not what the brand says about the product. It's what the live streamer understands and wants to communicate to his or to her audience. If you do that job well, the selection of the product at the right time uh, with clear takeaways for the audience watching, because again, it's fun and it's educative. If it's just about sell, 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 then yes, I, I would agree with you, um, Ali. But the way I see it is this is a unique educational moment that's fun between a live streamer and his or her audience. Nothing to do with the brand. But the, the live streamer endorsed by selecting your product endorses that product. And so that helps reduce the return Rate if you've done uh, if, if the brand did its job correctly. That that's how I view it. Or in our case, the agency. <laughs> you, you're kind. Or in your case, of course, the agency. Yeah, of course, of course, there, there are many actors involved. Yes. No, you were kind enough not to to say uh, it's a brand problem. But then I kind of thought to myself, I was like, oh, this makes a lot of sense. <laughs> it was probably the agency's fault. <laughs> Good one. One of the things you mentioned at the start of the show was about the the nuances and differences about how Chinese consumers shop and what the their the process that they go through. I, I have a hypothesis about this that this is not necessarily cultural but an evolutionary and that as digital channels become more developed to the way they are in China, that Western women will shop in a similar means as to the Chinese consumers do. Yeah, I worked on Helena Rubinstein, and I swear that it was the most challenging Chinese lesson I ever had because the terminology was so sophisticated. I swear I could have gotten a degree in dermatology. Uh, It was unbelievable how much stuff, how much science and information they put into into their products. Do you see this as that Chinese women tend to be more systematic and that they're very science-driven, and and, you, and obviously everyone's looking for benefits and results, whereas Western women tend to be more uh, emotional. They're looking more for, oh, if the Kardashians recommended it, they're looking more for heuristic type of connections. Is there a difference, or is, and this is a cultural difference, or is this an evolutionary path? And maybe someday Western and Chinese consumers will shop in the very similar means. I I look forward to your um, to reading your complete thesis, Rice, on this because that's a key uh, key question. <laughs> I 
the first time I was in China as a student was in, in the early 1980s. And so I look a little bit to the, this question of evolution versus cultural with a bit of hindsight. I think when the beauty industry in China developed, that's when the digital ecosystems developed concomitantly. And so it, you can speak about evolution, but it's also the amount of information available and, and the sharing that these platforms enabled led to something very unique in China. Could deploy some at some point elsewhere in other markets, but at the moment I, I find it very cultural to, to China, which is, and you're right with your point about uh, Helena Rubinstein, is the level of expertise of a Chinese consumer when it comes to skin, hair, beauty, because whatever, is unparalleled. The knowledge of what goes into a formula, of the ingredients, why the ingredients, at what concentration, and what does it do when it's at 2% versus at 3%, and when it's formulated in a, this kind of formulation or that kind of, I'm, I'm not going to get technical here, but they actually help our formulators, our chemists, our scientists, our researchers up their game because these beauty companies are marketing to consumers who are not there for the simplistic blah, blah. They really want to understand what does this ingredient why was it chosen and what will it do for my skin? And I, you're, you're asking about culture, uh, Bryce. I tie this in a way, and some, pe some people simplify it too much, but uh, I tie it to what can be summarized as the culture behind the traditional Chinese medicine. What you eat determines your health at certain season, depending on your body's needs and and what you drink or what you don't drink, and if it's cold or warm, and then and there's so many different cycles throughout the year. And so I, even if they're not TCM experts, there's this cultural dimension that ingredients are critical. And we see it in many aspects, but we see it in, um, in beauty. You talk to a skincare user in China, and you think you're talking to a a very uh, well-educated, researched um, scientist. But when it comes, uh, Ali was mentioning live stream, et cetera, um, you know, the, in some Western market, there were, what was it called? There were um, TV shopping, TV shopping, you know. Like QVC. Um, uh, QVCs and HSNs. And, and, and so maybe in terms of evolution and convergence, uh, maybe – some Chinese consumers went straight to the most the most definitive um, phase of of that kind of interactive, fun, educational shopping, but enabled by online tools, by digital tools. So they, they skipped some of the intermediary phase. We we've the three of us have seen this in other industries also, where they just go to the the, the most developed latest version and they skip everything in between so i think i'm i'm french so there's a uh, expression in, in french in réponse de normand uh, normand answer it's a bit of both i would say a bit of cultural and a bit of evolution for sure i play in the beauty business that's great 
e-commerce business now and the beauty business in China is about 50% online. And it's probably growing. It's probably more growing more than that. It's probably beyond 50% now. That was, that was, a, that was a few years ago. I always wonder is that do beauty brands need offline? Uh, do they need an offline presence or can they build a complete digital only beauty brand? I know we saw a brand like like Perfect Diary. They started to launch flagship stores in key cities. I know I know one the one in Shanghai. It was nothing nothing very impressive, but is offline presence still necessary here or we we'll eventually go beyond that where we don't even need to go to the counters anymore and we can have a total online experience. Here it's a question of evolution. There are many Chinese uh, D2C brands that started online and scaled very quickly at, at online. The need, to answer your question, the need to, to have online um, and offline, in my understanding, is linked to not O two O, but O plus O. It's linked to the journey of the consumer, and you see it every day with consumers in stores online or offline. You can have a consumer in a physical store, but checking reviews online as they try the product. You can see consumers buying online but trying offline. So it's not one or the other, or it's not from one to the other. It's both because the consumers in beauty, they don't oppose or they don't see one as a precursor to the other, or one as a sequel to the previous one. Um, but the answer is what is the role that the brand allocates or defines for their store? What is what is the experience and the usefulness of a store online or offline? If they're both the same, then they're not going to be successful. But if there's a reason to go online and a reason to go offline and both participate in the building of the brand, then yes, I do think that beauty brands need an online and an offline presence. And maybe when it comes to... Um, to Perfect Diary uh, had a very excellent uh, start and success, and there was a lot of talk about it. Maybe at some point they didn't really think through the role of their offline stores versus what they were doing online. That's my hypothesis. I, I tend to agree. I think that they were primarily focused on the online component, and they got to a point where they realized that they needed to have that offline experience i mean the validation of online purchases through online offline experiences in china is huge it's 60 70 percent uh people still go to counters and will try products uh, uh they'll spend that time and then they'll just sit and open up their app and and buy the product uh from from taobao or or jingdong uh it's i remember at one time in china that that the counters the brands hated that uh, because the way that the distribution model was set up, uh, it took a while to become O plus O. 
uh, that was definitely with it. Remember that time where the, the online offline groups were competing against each other and, and you go to client meetings and the, and the e-commerce people were like in a different room and we're always wondering like, why, why don't we have the e-commerce people come? Oh, it's a different department, Bryce. Don't, don't bother them. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, it's obviously the successful ones are, are combining the two together. I, uh, I was going to just, uh, the, uh, Maybelline is also part of the L'Oreal family of, it of is. brands. Yes, Ali. Yes. I, I saw a case study, um, the other day and in it, they talked about how they built experience stores for Maybelline, um, offline. And I think those stores have since, uh, closed, but I think one of the big takeaway for them was that they were selling a lot more product through the offline store because there was a lot more experimentation within that environment. So when you have lipsticks and especially for women, they have a tendency of trying more things or trying more colors. And so when they left, the basket was a lot more full versus online where it was kind of, and this is going back to your point around role where online it was kind of, or at least this is how we deduced. It was, um, you know, the color that they would continue to use over a long time, but, over longer term but when it was you know do i want a new color for you know for a different occasion then that's something that they would rather do within an offline environment and i think to your point earlier on the o plus o i think in the and the role that both channels play i think that's uh that that's that's what came to mind when you mentioned that that resonates well we first met stefan when you were working on usi and which i think is a great product i think after my brief exposure to it, I actually bought it for quite a long time. That's the other great thing about working on beauty brands is a, I start like going to all these sign, these meetings and listening to all the product benefits. And I'm like, God, that really makes a lot of sense. Why don't, why am I not using sunscreen? Why am I not moisturizing enough? And I start doing it myself. And, and believe it or not, people, especially come back, leave China and people come back and say, wow, your skin looks great. I said, yeah, because I buy the bullshit, you know, it's not, it's, there's, there's some truth in this, man. Are you using sunscreen? You know, <laughs> like, no, should I? <laughs> well, okay. Are we in a moment where we'll see Chinese brands exported out of China? Do you think that, that brands like USI or, uh, which has obviously got Chinese, you know, Chinese herbal uh, ingredients, but are there other brands that you think that will start to export? Is there uh, an ability to go global? And if it's not, maybe not a L'Oreal acquired brand, maybe somebody else that you think, wow, this brand has definitely got, or is it too early uh, for Chinese brands to compete globally? I sincerely hope uh, that uh, you continue <laughs> on your uh, beauty journey, uh, Bryce. And uh Feel free to contact me if you have any um, questions. But but you're right. There's a lot to learn in China, and there are many Chinese brands that are phenomenal. And the brand Yusai that was started by Madame Yusai, who herself is a phenomenal lady, a very successful and very daring and a pioneering uh, entrepreneur. She saw the opportunity of beauty in China before anybody else, and she saw the opportunity of bringing the best of the West and the best of the East together to help Chinese women uh, best explore and best express their, their unique beauty. So I think once a Chinese brand is strong in its home market, definitely it has an opportunity outside of China. If we forget the beauty industry for just a, a few minutes and you look at other industries, cars, uh, phones, um, entertainment like TikTok, you see Chinese brands that are winning outside of China. I think in beauty, maybe the path will be through Southeast Asia, 
and uh, other Asian markets, and then at some point um, outside of Asia into possibly Europe or the U.S., Obviously, there's the elephant in the room, of, especially these days, of how China as a country, I'm not talking about a specific brand, but China as a country is perceived or misperceived um, or misunderstood um, because of maybe political uh, you know, discourses. I don't want to get into that, but that obviously plays a role. Um, in shaping perceptions of um, brands. Um, so so I, I, I see that coming. I, I see it already for some brands um, that have successfully navigated markets outside of China. And I think for beauty, there's a lot to learn from uh, these Chinese beauty brands, definitely. They don't have to be, uh, they don't have to be a part of your past portfolio of companies, but what are the three top Chinese brand beauty brands that you love? I mean, you just think that, uh, they're, they're just awesome. I worked on, I, I got exposed to this one brand called Kaleidos. They are an export Chinese brand. Uh, just a fantastic product. Great messaging. Beautiful product. Uh, all developed in China, mainly for the Western market. But uh, that's mine. What are your favorite? If you had a couple ones that you got exposed to through your M&A job, you say, God, these guys are amazing. And what are they and why are they so amazing? There's... Bryce, so many. Even when you're in China, you don't always perceive it, but there's so many Chinese beauty brands. And they're well-known to Chinese consumers. They're totally unknown um, outside of, of China. I'll, I'll answer your question, but I was in, in China a few weeks ago, and it was the Odomobile show, the Odo show. I was uh, dumbfounded by the same realization that there's so many Chinese car EV makers that nobody knows about that are so powerful when it comes to design to all the functionalities they, they provide that they're way ahead. And so in beauty, there's many brands. I think recently a lot of creativity is in the perfume space, in the fragrance space. So maybe in traditional um, beauty um, cosmetics, Skincare. There's a brand called Proya, P-R-O-Y-A, that I've known it has nothing to do with M&A. That I've known for many years. That's a, a fast learner of um, of Chinese skin and Chinese hair. And then there are many new brands in makeup and also in, um, but more recently in fragrance that are amazing. One of them is a brand called Documents. It's English name. I mean, they all have Chinese name. They may or may not have an English name, but but really, every day you see new brands, and it and I'm not kidding. Every day you see new brands in beauty in in China. But do they stay? I mean, do you see them over a long period of time, or is this is this kind of? The, I, I've heard of Proya as well. Herberist, no, not Herberist. There's another one. Um, but the but do you see do do, do you see them lasting as well, or, or is this kind of uh, here today, gone tomorrow. So, so that's why I'm, I mentioned Proya because that brand's been tested over time, um, and it's been around and it is around and depends on what they do, but it should be around for many um, years. And then you're right; there are some brands that come and go. I think, and that could be an interesting discussion, Bryce, um, for after this uh, podcast. But I, I think it's. Many Chinese brands start with a product. They don't start with a brand. They start with a product 
or a hero product that will work with the algorithms of the of the different uh, online platforms. And so some of these brands very early on realize that it can't just be about the product. It has to be about the product and the brand as a halo. Um, and, and for those brands that intentionally work on building the equity of the brand, not just the awareness of the product, then yes, they have a chance to, to be sustainable over time if they don't miss the next generation of consumers who come and say, that's that's not a brand for me because I'm from a very different generation. And we're talking four or five years here, not talking 20 years. And then there are some Chinese brands that do a really good job at the product level, but for whatever reason may not pivot early enough to explaining to consumers why this brand is there. What is this brand doing as a brand, not what is this product doing in within the beauty regime of the consumer? But what is this brand doing? And if, if that's the case, then I think they come and go. Yeah, the, the question was really born from cars as well and the experience that you had at the, Sh- the Shanghai Auto Show. I think there's an expectation that not all of the EV car brands that you saw will continue to exist, but there certainly will be a handful that will. Um, and then I was trying to draw a connection with beauty and and skincare and cosmetics. And I guess, you know, that is probably true for um, this category as well. Those some that are just going to be, you know, they'll have, there's, they, they have brand trust, they have purpose, um, they have product innovation, they understand the platforms. In cars, I learned that there's an entry, there's a really a high entry barrier, which is the cost of developing a platform, which is measured in billions of uh RMB or dollars. And so if if the uh, funding community, if the bankers and VCs are not funding, there's going to be a consolidation, uh, obviously. In, in beauty, we're not talking about the same uh, entry levels. But the, the bearer that I see is at the brand equity level. Are you clear about what, who, what you stand for? You mentioned Ali Purpose. Why are you here in my beauty uh, world? If I'm a consumer, I understand you as a product. I need to understand you as a brand. I think that's where the jump is. The jumping step is for some of these Chinese brands. This is a question I get asked all the time. And we know that through our uh, amazing algorithms on this platform, we know that a lot of young people listen to our podcast. So uh, we know uh, from your experience in, in the beauty business, and the fact that uh, you know you worked at one of the most top five most attractive companies to work for, what advice do you have for young people looking to start their career in the beauty industry? My advice w- would be a question, and my question would be: Is beauty your passion? And if yes, why? And in the beauty world, and it's a very diverse world across different categories and so many different beauty needs. What, what do you aspire to change? Because it, it can't be a job. It can't be applying for a job. It, it, it's about being passionate to make beauty even more beautiful, to helping consumers who have different understandings of what beauty means to them um, achieve their goals. And so, but if that's your passion, then yes, apply to L'Oreal because indeed it's the best uh, global beauty company and it leads the industry. It, it drives change. 
So my advice is a question, and that question is, why are you passionate about beauty? Mm, great, great point. Uh, I, I like the the fact that you mentioned a passionate about beauty, which I would say. Now you're going to say, no, this is not the case, but I've been to a number of marketing meetings at beauty brands and I'm the only guy in the room. <laughs> it's a female industry. Uh, I've always told my students that from the day one, because I signed them beauty brands as case studies, and I'd always get a male student to come to me and say, professor, I do not have any interest in this category. And I respond to him to say, then don't be a marketer. If you're not interested in women's marketing products, then your your scope of brands is very small on the consumer side. Uh, so um, what makes you passionate about the beauty industry? So answer is yes, 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 and yes to all these uh, questions. Uh, first of all, I think there's a lot of men, uh, male uh, colleagues in in the beauty industry um first of all because in some of the big markets especially china but other north asian markets also um the men beauty business is big so that's what we don't necessarily realize but it's big growing and very specific but it's not about being a man or about being a woman and understanding men or women uh needs it's it's just if you're passionate about beauty, which means beauty is linked to so many different – if I ask you, Bryce, what is beauty? And I ask you, Ali, what is beauty? And I ask somebody else, what is beauty? I'll get different answers. So, so beauty means very different things. And so why am I passionate about beauty is because it's – you're constantly having to ask yourself this product, this campaign, this brand, this um, whatever – how will it fit into the beauty needs of my targeted consumers? And they're always changing. You can't say the Chinese consumers all have this beauty need. That, that doesn't exist. And I don't know of many other industries where there's such a diversity from the confidence uh, aspect to your exterior, to your inside, to whatever you're, how you're feeling, the, the season, the age, your body, there's so many, so many different parameters at play, um, the cultural and yeah, it's, it's exciting because every day is a different day in the beauty business. Every day is a, is a different day because consumers have, and, and you can't define one consumer, one beauty need and think of yourselves and your better halves or, the women who, who matter in your in your lives and the men also um, think of their beauty needs. How about you, Ali? Passion for beauty? I like beautiful things. My wife keeps on reminding me to dress up and be better groomed. But uh, I've taken a liking to being groomed, actually. And this is something very recent. So this morning I shaved. I cut my hair short. I'm losing a couple of pounds. I think there's fitness for me and just, you know, feeling good is beauty. Feel, feeling good and feeling young. Are yeah. we ready for the A-B test? I think we are. Stefan, are you ready? Absolutely. Um, number one, ethical or authentic? Authentic. Paris or New York? New York today, for sure. Resilience or persistence? I like persistence. Online or offline? Then I'll say and. Offline and online. Uh, skincare or hair care? Skincare. 
Um, this is the first time we're ever doing three um, in in one ask. A J Beauty, C Beauty, or K Beauty. Today it would be C Beauty for me because C Beauty feeds off J Beauty and K Beauty and goes so much um, beyond that. And there are many reported instances, for instance, of Japanese consumers looking at Sea Beauty as an inspiration today, which would have been unthinkable a few years ago. So definitely Sea Beauty. That's really fascinating um, to think that uh, maybe because it's true that, I mean, we all agree that Koreans are much better at, at, at exporting pop culture than the Chinese, but, but the Sea Beauty will be more about the ingredients and formulations, more the science uh, will be the their contribution to to the global beauty business. Is that something that you think international beauty brands are looking at exporting as well, Sea Beauty to the rest of the world? Yes, um, because Sea Beauty is very deep in, as we discussed, both from the scientific formulation ingredient level, but also cultural. So. Uh, countries like Korea, of course, have perfected the art of exporting Korean culture. But definitely, uh, when it comes to beauty, yes, sea beauty is something that will be, is and will be exported. I've got four more to go. Redbook or TikTok? Redbook. You learn so much on Redbook. AI or metaverse? AI. And here I'm at the start of my AI journey, but AI, yes. Uh, hydration or anti-aging? Anti-aging. Uh, UCC or IIE? I love UCC. Who are these people, Ali? Ah, these two people, great question. So um, as the world of, I guess, live streaming and KOL marketing moves away from physical, real celebrities, uh, virtual KOLs um, seem to be a lot more reliable and delivering a consistent and very persistent, authentic uh, brand message <laughs> on online and offline environments. I was trying to cover up as much as I could. And they pay their taxes on time. And they pay their taxes too. on time. <laughs> they don't get thrown out of, into, into the slammer. Yeah. Ali the poet. Very good. <laughs> That's great. Well, Stefan, thank you for being on the show today and for amazing insights that you've shared with us on the beauty industry and your experiences both across China and the U.S. Oh, we really appreciate it. Fantastic, uh, fantastic discussion. Thank you for having me, Bryce. Thank you for having me, Ali. It was uh, very interesting. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for being on today's episode. Join us in a few weeks for another exciting show. And to all our listeners, until then, have a great day. 